I was jealous of Christians who didn't know because they were free. They didn't have to deal with any of this. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. Grab a cup of coffee and join Colleen Tinker and Nikki Stevenson as they discuss their life after Adventism. Welcome to Former Adventist Podcast. I'm Nikki Stevenson. And I'm Colleen Tinker. I am so excited about the portion of scripture we're discussing today, Colleen. (laughs) Me too. I actually feel emotional about it. Today we're covering 10 simple but profound verses, Galatians 4, 21 to 31. These are the verses that set me free. I can't read this passage without being taken back to that moment in 2010, that early morning when I read and saw these words for the first time and I found myself sitting on my love seat, weeping both for joy and in grief. How had I gone so long without knowing the truth? The words were clear. They weren't hard to understand. I just saw them. That morning when my husband entered the living room with our baby and our toddler with him, he found me crying and he looked concerned. And all I could say to explain myself was, they lied to us. Wow. It was the moment when I knew that we didn't just misunderstand the gospel. We'd been lied to and the Adventist organization had gone to great lengths to do it. It was the first time I really saw the darkness in Adventism and the multi-generational, all-hands-on-deck effort that infused every level of the organization to protect it. What I didn't know was how many of those who were a part of that, working to shore up the organization, were deceived like we had been or were intentional in their work. And I could hardly spend time with that at the moment because I was also beholding the wonder of the true gospel at the same time. (laughs) I knew that what Paul was describing in this passage was not the good news I'd been fed in Adventism. It was something completely different and incompatible with what I thought about the law and, you know, the last day remnant Adventist message. They didn't fit together. What Paul was describing was actually good news, (laughs) and I want it in. If you've never spent time examining these verses before, or if you just love them like we do, we hope you'll get your Bible and read these words for yourselves as we walk through and discuss them together. But before we get started, let me remind you that we love hearing from you. You can write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to find a wealth of resources for those who want to learn more about Adventism or who are processing out and into Christianity. You'll find both current and past online articles, links to our YouTube channel and past conferences, links to Christian commentaries exposing the errors in the current Adventist Sabbath School quarterly lessons. You'll also find transcripts for this podcast, links to free online books, reader comments, and more. You can also sign up there to receive weekly emails delivering new material and ministry news to you every Friday. And there's a donation tab there as well if you'd like to come alongside Lamb with your financial support. Support. So don't forget to go to proclamationmagazine.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen, and please leave a review and share it with a friend. All right, Colleen, here's okay. my question for you. All right. Do you remember the first time you really began to see what Paul was talking about and describing in this portion of Galatians? I don't remember a moment. I do remember that when we first came out of Adventism, Galatians was the first book we went through in former Adventist Fellowship Bible study. And that was the the time when, as a whole, as a progressive event, Friday to Friday, week to week, when I began to understand that Galatians was not just about ceremonial laws and circumcision, but it was actually describing what Adventism was. Mm -hmm. And this particular passage is the most comprehensive and succinct place, I think, where it's really clear Mm -hmm. that he's indicting Adventism before it had actually come into the world. It's like I've sometimes said, it's like God knew what was coming down the road, and he made sure that all the answers were in his book before Adventism or Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or any of them came to be. Mm -hmm. I do know that I've had an ongoing revelation from this section where I've had to work through all the details of the way Paul develops his argument because it's completely counterintuitive. 
And when I read that he is comparing Mount Sinai to the Egyptian slave Hagar and saying that Mount Sinai is represented by Hagar, oh my goodness, Nikki. (laughs) And the other thing I realized that I never, ever put together as an Adventist is that Sinai was characterized by all the symbols of divine judgment, mm-hmm. not of revelation and victory and release, but judgment, fire, thunder, blocked off mountains, fear, trembling, earthquakes. Those are divine judgment signs that never dawned on me. This passage is amazing. So, what about you, Nikki? Tell us about that moment for you. So, that morning that I read Galatians, it came after I had read Truth Led Me Out by Dale Ratzlaff. Okay. And I'd had a few conversations with my mother-in-law. And so there were holes that had been punched through the darkness. There were question marks. There was reason to want to get to the bottom of things. And and on that particular morning, um, I was very aware of the fact that it was Sabbath. And uh-huh. I thought God would be more present. And I, I prayed and I said, since you're you're more present with me today than any other day, will you please show me what I need to know? Wow. And then just did the, what was typical for me, the random flip the Bible open and it went to introduction to Galatians. And I remember wow. being annoyed, like, <laughs> really? <laughs> you know, because you're supposed to flip your Bible open and unicorns fly out and tell you what to do. <laughs> this was just the beginning of a book. And I decided to just push through it and read it. And uh, it was just shocking. I had attended New Testament classes at the master's level at La Sierra University and read this letter in those classes and nothing. I didn't see oh, it. Oh, my goodness. It was just about circumcision. Didn't yes. mean anything. But on this morning, it was, I don't know, it was almost surreal. And so God had led me to that place where I was able to actually see. And I had asked him to show me the truth, and he sure did. And I hadn't read a lot of the Old Testament before that, but I sure knew the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. I had spent some time in that, and I don't know, it was just this beautiful moment. And you know what it makes me think of? Exactly what happened to you is an illustration of exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, that amazing chapter, you know, where he compares pairs and contrasts the ministry of death written on stone Mm -hmm. with the ministry of the Spirit written on tablets of human hearts. And he says this in verses 13 and 14, we're not like Moses, and he's talking about, you know, believers who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. (laughs) But their minds were hardened for until this very day, Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. And then 15, but to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart, 16, but whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, and that's what you did that day. You said, please show me what I need. And he knew you needed the Lord and not Moses. (laughs) Yeah. And the very next day, he took us to a Sunday church (laughs) and we met the body of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. Okay, Nikki, would you read this passage for us? please. Yes. And actually I'm reading in the NIV because the first time I read this, it was in the NIV and I just wanted to go back to that. Okay. So beginning in verse 21, tell me you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh. But his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. 
At that time, the Son born according to the flesh persecuted the Son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Wow. I can see why you were so overwhelmed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's not just good news, but also a call to integrity and action. And a leaving behind. Yeah. When you realize what it is that you had and what you believed, he really doesn't let us just straddle the fence and keep a foot in both camps. We have to make a choice. So back to this first verse in this passage, verse 21, tell me, you who want to be under law, what do you not listen to the law? What, what does he mean here, Nikki? What is he asking them? What does he mean? Do you not listen to the law? Well, he's using law in two different ways here. First to mean the Mosaic covenant, and then to mean the first five books of the Old Testament. So it's as if he's saying, tell me, you who wish to be under the Mosaic covenant, do you not listen to the books of history and the law? Because he's going to take them to the story of Sarah and and Hagar and Abraham that come out of Genesis. Right. And the other thing too is that the law is not just about keeping things and doing things and taking on the rituals, but it's also a curse of death. That's a very interesting thing to think of it it being not just the covenant, but the whole five books, which is going to tell us the story of the law. So go on and talk to us about the second one, verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. Well, he's been talking a lot in this letter about Abraham and the promises that came to the Gentile church through Abraham, not through Moses. So he's taking us back to Abraham again, and he talks about Hagar, the slave woman, who they picked up in Egypt. Isn't that correct? It's correct. And then the free woman, Sarah. The legal wife. Mm-hmm not the slave. And Hagar was a slave. So it's interesting to me too that your version said he's using this story figuratively. Many versions talk about it being allegorically speaking. And it's just worth mentioning, just from a linguistic point of view, that some people over the years have assumed that because Paul is referring to the story and saying it's allegorically speaking, discussing this whole issue of the covenants, that some people have assumed that means that the story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah is just an allegory, that it isn't a real story. But that's not true. We know that in literature, allegories really generally are fictional stories that tell a truth. And I think perhaps one of the most famous is Pilgrim's Progress. That didn't really happen, except that it really happens in the (laughs) lives of a Christian. So it's an allegory explaining the life of a Christian. But Paul is here using a very real story, but he's using it typologically. He's using the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar to make a point now on this side of the cross. And it's just worth mentioning that just because in that rarefied world of, one might say, unbelief and higher criticism, these words are often used to justify an inaccurate interpretation of the story of Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. No, that was real. We know it's real because the offspring of those sons are alive today, and we see what's going on still in those offspring. And I think, too, that it's important to to notice that he lets us know when he's moving into allegory. We don't just get to randomly decide, oh, that's just allegory. That's a good point. Yeah, like many people do with scripture. Mm -hmm. Well, we have to interpret this allegorically because it doesn't make sense any other way. Well, you know, if the words mean what the words say, maybe that needs to determine what a passage means. Yeah, what's the context? It's also interesting to think about the timeline in this story. For me, it was helpful to remember, because when you think about why would Sarah give Hagar to Abraham, what wife would do that? There's a little bit of context there as well. So, in Genesis 15, when God made his covenant with Abraham, it was 10 years after that, Sarah suggested he take Hagar. They had gone into Egypt. They had come back. They'd brought Sarah and all of the wealth that the king had given Abraham to get out of town because, you know, it was his payment to Abraham for having taken Sarah because Abraham misrepresented her as his sister instead of his wife. Mm -hmm. And he sent 
sent her back, sent wealth, and said, now leave us. So Hagar was part of that spoils, if you will. And 10 years had passed, and they were thinking, where's the son? Where's the offspring? And Sarah was clearly barren. So she did something that was not unheard of in that time and place. And we see this in others of the patriarchs as well. We see that Jacob had sons that were part of the 12 tribes, some of them by Leah's handmaid and some by Rachel's handmaid. And it was not uncommon for women to give their husbands their maids, their handmaids, to bear children when they couldn't anymore or if they couldn't. And those children would then be considered legally the property or the children of the wife. Even though they were the children of the handmaid, they were in a legal sense, the husband and the wife's son. I mean, it kind of belonged to them. So there was a sort of precedent for this, and Abraham took her up on it. And this is in spite of the fact that God had said, I will do what I will do. So when Hagar conceived, the Bible says she began to despise Sarah, because here she is, she's having the firstborn son, and it's clear to everybody that Sarah is barren. And that was considered to be somehow a judgment for a woman not to be able to have a child. So she began to despise Sarah, and Sarah began to resent Hagar, and she sent her away. But God sent Hagar back. And it wasn't until after Isaac was born that God finally said to Abraham, do what your wife says and send Hagar and her son away. So what's interesting is that Ishmael was born. Then Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. When he was 99, God came to him again and reiterated his covenant promises again and told him then, you will have a son by your wife, Sarah. And she, at this point, was almost 90. Of course, you can imagine the reactions there. Sarah laughed, the Bible says. But the fact is that a year later, Isaac was born. After Isaac was born, when he was weaned, they finally sent away Hagar and Ishmael. But it was interesting because God didn't let them go without his own promises to Hagar. And he promised Hagar that he would make a great nation of Ishmael as well. But it wasn't the covenant promise. He said that her son would be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And it's interesting that Our pastor Gary has said in teaching through this passage that today we can still see the results of this, that most of the Arabs in the Middle East today are a blend of the descendants of Ishmael and Esau, and the Jews, as we know, are the descendants of Isaac. So all of this unending tension that has marked the Middle East for millennia began with the birth of these two sons of Abraham, and it's the second son who received the covenant blessing as God's promised son, the son of promise. I remember as an Adventist when I thought about things done in the flesh, I thought of like really terrible things that were obvious sins that were just not allowed. As I began to read scripture, I realized that works done in the flesh, they can look really moral. Yeah. They can be completely normal. Anytime we are acting outside of God's will, we're acting from the flesh. And so when I read through this and I started to see Paul referring to one being a child of the flesh and one being a child of the promise and all of those definitions kind of started changing and taking a new shape in my head. What did he mean, a child of the flesh? This was normal for men to do. And it was them trying to keep God's promise for them. Yeah. And honestly, it reminded me a little bit of us as Adventists trying to hasten the return of Christ. (laughs) Like, we're going to do this and and then his promise to come back, you know, we'll make sure that gets met on our timeline. That's a great point. A little bit of a rabbit hole there, but I often thought that works done in the flesh meant something different. Right. And it took me a while to think through the same thing too, because both boys were born of the flesh. Yeah. They were born of women. Mm -hmm. They were not immaculate conceptions like the Lord Jesus. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, Sarah couldn't have children. And God intervened and miraculously caused her and the very old Abraham to have a son. And he not only gave a son to a barren wife, but she was a wife beyond childbearing years. So it was like a double miracle here. Yeah. Nobody could miss this. Nobody could say, well, there you go. 
she really isn't barren. No, she was barren. She was barren to the point that her maid had a son 13 years before her own was born. So the son of promise doesn't mean God doesn't use human people in the flesh. It means that he brings about what the flesh is unable to do on its own. Ishmael's birth was purely flesh. It was what the flesh could do on its own. And even Sarah's giving Hagar to Abraham was a fleshly motive. It's like, God hasn't given us this fulfillment yet. Let's make sure it happens. Hagar can do it, and this son then will inherit the blessing because he'll be your son, and legally he'll be under my authority because I'm the wife. But that's not the promise. The promise was yours and Sarah's. And isn't it interesting, Nikki, that in this time in the world when women really were more or less chattel, Sarah is part of God's promise. Mm -hmm. And she's not only part of God's promise in terms of the birth of Isaac and the Holy Seed, she is so much a part of the promise that Paul uses this story and shows how she plays this very central role in the lives of everybody who believes. She's the mother of all who believe. <laughs> She's like the continuation of the promise to Eve. Your seed will crush the serpent. So the promise was born of God's will, God's design, and it would come about by him, by him. and in his time. And I, I would say that works so well when we look at the point of Galatians. Our salvation is God's gift, God's promise. He's working it out and he'll bring about the conclusion of all of this in his time and in his way. And when we try to help him along with works of the flesh, keeping the law for sanctification, we are acting as children of Hagar from Mount yes. Sinai, born for slavery. No, we're supposed to cast that out and trust the promise completely. Paul says, That's a great we point. are children of the promise that means God's going to fulfill the promise. And we don't have to help him out by pleasing him by keeping the law. In fact, it's so interesting to me, Nikki, in working through this, the implications of what he's saying about the law at Sinai, and you can't see this in any way other than including the Ten Commandments, because those were the very words of the covenant. He is comparing that to the slave woman. What do you think a Jew felt reading this, especially if they hadn't met the Lord and believed in their Savior? This would be shocking. Very offensive. <laughs> yeah. How do you dare compare Sinai to an Egyptian? <laughs> no, but that's what he's doing. And Paul makes it clear that Scripture these Old Testament passages was written for our sake as well. That's right. In the book of Romans, in chapter 4, verses 18 to 25, he talks about this promise made to Abraham, and he quotes from the Old Testament, so shall your descendants be, you know, after he has him look at the stars. And he says, without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And the deadness of Sarah's womb, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he will also perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. In the same way, Abraham looked at himself and his wife and said, yeah, we can't do this. <laughs> God's going to do this. And he worshiped God and gave him glory because he knew he could. We find ourselves in that same place knowing we cannot save ourselves. Only God can do this. And so we wait and we worship him and we are credited with righteousness yes. through our faith in Christ and in the work God is doing, has done, and will do. Yes. Second Corinthians 2.20, for as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes. And the context <laughs> is in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And then Paul goes on, therefore, also through us is our amen to the glory of God through us. <laughs> as many as are the promises of God, they're yes in Christ. We don't accomplish them. We don't help him save us by showing that we're keeping the Sabbath and letting the world know we're loyal to a day. We don't help him save us by keeping our frontal lobes healthy with a vegan diet. 
We trust God. Nikki, what do people do if they're quadriplegics and they can't really eat a vegan diet or a normal diet? What do they do if they're born with a chromosomal disorder where they are impaired intellectually? Well, Ellen handled that, you know. She said it it will be as if they never were. That was her solution Mm -hmm. to people who couldn't understand the gospel. No, we do not have to intellectually understand the gospel if we're born impaired. The Lord knows how to reveal himself and his salvation to everybody's spirit. People can believe even if they are not fully functional the way we think a human should be functional, which of course brings me to another subject of Adventism, and that is abortion. We cannot assume that those babies in the womb are not full human beings with spiritual identities and physical identities. They're a full human spirit and body, and that's why it is a sin to kill them. Mm. So then in, in verse 24, he says, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. Full stop. Two <laughs> covenants. <Yes>. Hold on. <laughs> When I saw that, I was like, wait a minute. I thought that we just had, we were the most right because we had the one true covenant, right? It began in eternity past and it moves all the way through. And we were the remnant who were restoring God's truth to the people who'd lost it and forgotten it. And Jesus came to help us, you know, (laughs) get the message out there that God is good and just and his law is good and just and we ought to keep it. Right. Now we're talking about two covenants. Not a fuller covenant, not a renewed covenant, two. (laughs) That's interesting. And you know, it's amazing to me, Nikki, that that's what hit you when you read that. Yeah. That was like, hold on. We're talking about two different covenants and one is for slavery. I was sitting up tall as I read these words. (laughs) So one covenant is from Mount Sinai. Well, Everybody knows that's the Mosaic Covenant. Right. And that was this really incredibly holy moment. And it was. But in my head, Mount Sinai was like, holy ground. Don't mess with Mount Sinai. Right. (laughs) And then this covenant from Mount Sinai bears children who are to be slaves. Yeah, that's overwhelming. It was overwhelming and incredibly accurate. It described what it felt like trying to show the whole world and all the universe (laughs) that this law can be kept. It was slavery. Having this special information that other people didn't have was bondage. Absolutely. I was jealous of Christians who didn't know because they were free. They didn't have to deal with any of this. I really related to this as I read it. So how did you understand the other covenant? What did you understand that one to be? Well, I was in the process of learning. (laughs) I didn't have a sense of another covenant. I think I just thought that there was one covenant and that it was renewed. But then in verse 25, he says, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she's in slavery with her children. Okay, present city Jerusalem. This is while Paul's writing, that's unbelieving Israel. Because Jerusalem hadn't been destroyed yet. No, that was unbelieving Israel who decided that they were so holy for putting to death this heretic and kept themselves under the law. Never mind the veil's been torn. Right. And I believe some of them knew that they put to death. Oh, I think they did know. The son of Mm -hmm. God. And then he says, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. So Sarah, the mother of the promise, is the mother of the church. She's the mother of those who have faith and who believe that it's God who works. It was shocking to me because there wasn't even a way to treat this like a, you know, those little Rubik's cubes that you can spin and, and change and try to get the colors matched up. I often felt like I was doing that with scripture to try to get it to work with Adventism. And there there was nothing that I could do with this passage that would in any way explain away what I was taught in Adventism. That's so interesting. You know, I realized that one of the things that I didn't understand when I read this, the very beginning when I first left Adventism, I was thinking of the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. That's not exactly what Paul is talking about here, although he is alluding to the New. He is really making the point about the Abrahamic Covenant. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know anything to speak of about the Abrahamic Covenant as an Adventist. So, he's actually equating the promise of God 
with the Abrahamic covenant and setting that as a contrast to the Mosaic covenant. I had believed that the Mosaic covenant was like added to the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, God made all these promises to Abraham, and then he gave a little more revelation to Moses and to Israel. And oh yes, now we have the law, and we have the Sabbath, and we have the promise of the Messiah, and we have, oh, you know, all the stuff. And that's added to the Abrahamic covenant, but it was not Mm-mm. It was a separate covenant, and that's what Paul is actually saying right here. The Abrahamic covenant was pure promise. Mm-hmm. Seed, land, blessing, no help from Abraham, put to sleep, God is giving his promises. And here, Moses on the Mount of Sinai with all the fire and judgment and trumpets, and and by the way, he broke the first set of tablets when he saw that Israel was worshiping a golden calf while he was up getting the commandments. All of this was going on with the Mosaic Covenant, and that was a separate covenant that was not added to. It was like parallel. The Abrahamic covenant was still in force, but God was forming a nation and giving them a way to live. He was giving them a constitution and a method of worship, and it was just for them underneath the overarching continuation of the Abrahamic covenant. They were separate. They never blended. That's what I had not understood. And that's what Paul is actually trying to tell us here. Yeah, he's just gotten done explaining to us how separate the Mosaic Covenant is from the Abrahamic Covenant, that the Mosaic Covenant came at a certain point in time until the seed would come, and that these Gentile Christians were not grafted in through Moses and the promises and curses to Moses. The Christians, the church, the new covenant comes in grafted through Abraham Abraham and the promises made to Abraham and that covenant. So in Adventism, we we interpreted the new covenant as like this renewed covenant that God made with Moses. It was all about the law. Yeah, yeah. In actuality, it was more a fulfillment of the covenant he made to Abraham. Yes. Completely different promise, different covenant, different system, unrelated to Moses. And just like the Judaizers were trying to reach across the chasm and pull the Christians up into their covenant. The Adventists are doing the same thing today. Yes, and not are. only are they trying to graft believers into their covenant with law keeping, right. they're calling the true believers apostate Babylon. Yes. And they're saying, come out of Babylon. That's their third angel's message we talked about last week. Come out of her. Eat like us. Worship when we do. Get away from her. It's horrifying to me. And you know, you can't miss the fact that these covenants are separate when he compares them, actually identifies them with two separate women. Yeah. One a free woman and one a slave woman. And you can't get away from that symbolism, from that typology. And you know, it's so interesting. He says, the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. And here he's contrasting also the earthly Jerusalem with the heavenly Jerusalem. Yeah. And he's comparing... Hagar, or actually I should say he's contrasting Hagar and the covenant of Sinai and saying that she is present Jerusalem, and that's contrasted with Sarah and the heavenly Jerusalem. And we learn in Hebrews 12, for example, that there is a heavenly Jerusalem, which is where God dwells. In fact, we read in Hebrews 12, 21 to 24, this amazing passage, which I didn't know as an Adventist. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight of Sinai, that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, the author of Hebrews says to the believers to whom he's writing, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Got that? (laughs) There are spirits. There are spirits made perfect. (laughs) And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The heavenly Jerusalem is real, and it's not the earthly Jerusalem. And Paul is making that contrast. And just by the way, the earthly Jerusalem that was existing when Paul wrote this, as we talked about earlier, was destroyed. In Mm -hmm. AD 70, that temple was destroyed. And even though there is a Jerusalem today, which has to be a fulfillment of God's ultimate promises, 
but it is not a functional Jerusalem as a place of worship for people who worship Yahweh. It has the ruins of the temple, it has the Temple Mount, but it's not the place where God is worshipped today. That Jerusalem, the earthly Jerusalem, was typified by Hagar. The heavenly Jerusalem, which is where God is now, is typified by Sarah, and that heavenly Jerusalem is our mother, and that's where all those who have trusted Jesus are with him now. And according to this text in Hebrews, when we believe Jesus and are born again, we join him and the living spirits and God and the assembly of the firstborn. We're spiritually with them now. The church is never separated from itself, whether we're alive in the flesh or out of the body. And with the Lord, the church is always together in Christ. And if you're on Mount Zion, you can't also be on Mount Sinai. They are antithetically opposed. I love to quote that J. Vernon McGee said about this. He said, as the earthly Jerusalem is the mother city of those who are under law, so the new Jerusalem is the mother city of the believer under grace. And I just have to say, some of you will have heard Debbie Buffon's testimony at the last FAF conference. It's online if you haven't heard it. It's wonderful. Go listen. (laughs) Yeah, she's wonderful. And Debbie Buffon had been in the foster system as a child. She had not grown up with her parents. And just interestingly, one of her natural parents was Jewish. So she had to wrestle in her growing up with foster parents, growing up with Adventist foster parents, she had to grapple ultimately with whether she was Jewish, whether she was Christian, whether she was Adventist, and she was confused about the whole thing. And she tried to find her identity in a Messianic Jewish community after she had left Adventism, but she wasn't finding any kind of peace until she went to a church service with a friend at the invitation of the friend, and the pastor preached through this passage in Galatians. And you know what? she said, I find it really moving. She said, I finally knew who my mother was. <laughs> this is an amazing passage for all of us who believe. Mm-hmm. We are children of promise. So then he quotes Isaiah chapter 54, verse one. He says, for it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And I find it fascinating, too, that this chapter comes immediately after Isaiah 53, where we get the description of Jesus on the cross. That is amazing. But I've never honestly known what to do with this quote. Even the first time I read this, I wasn't entirely sure what Paul was getting at here. Yeah, me too. I actually found McGee to be helpful with this as he was talking about it. Now, if we look through this quote... Isaiah is prophesying of God's eternal covenant of peace that he is going to make. Then Paul takes this verse and he applies it to Sarah and to all who are her children, those who have faith in God's promises and in his son, so that Sarah's children, the heavenly Jerusalem's children, are those who believe the children of promise. They're not the ones who work or observe the law. Law-keeping defines slaves who are the children of Hagar. Faith describes children of promise, the children of Sarah. And this was how J. Vernon McGee summarized this concept. He said, from Sarai, who was barren until the birth of Isaac, there came more descendants than ever came from Hagar. In this allegory, Paul is saying that God is saving under grace more members of the human family than he ever saved under the Mosaic law by the sacrificial system. (laughs) And I thought, you know what? Thank you, J. Vernon McGee. You have just clarified that quote for me in a, in a really profound way. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah. And you think of that first audience listening to that. They've come to faith. They've had to learn the Jewish religion, right? Because they were Gentiles, so it wasn't like a continuation of anything. They've come to faith. They're being placed under this system. They're having to learn it. They want to please God, and yeah. they're trying to be perfected by the law. And he's telling them, no, guys. Don't do it. It's through the promise that so many will be saved. And he says in the very next verse, and you, brethren like Isaac, are children of promise. He believes that he is writing this letter to true believers. If they don't reject their attachment to the law, their seduction by the law, if they don't reject it, then he fears maybe they never truly believed. 
But if they are brought back to what really brought them to faith in the first place, did they receive the Spirit by works of flesh or by the promise? If they remember how they became believers and that the Holy Spirit has worked these things in their lives, they can let go of the law. Even though their ego has been flattered by the Judaizers. And you know, Nikki, I guess I understand the dynamics here so well because I know how Adventists proselytize. And I feel like it's the same thing. They target Christians who aren't well grounded in Scripture. Their easiest converts are people who are already Christians. Mm -hmm. They're not out there looking for rank unbelievers because rank unbelievers would be too confused. But they find people who want to please God. And they say, well, of course, if you want to please God, then you need to keep all of His Word. And the Roman Catholics have confused the Sunday keepers and have confused the Word of God. And here's the true Word of God. The seventh day is the Sabbath. And if you want to really please God, you have to do that. That's not the gospel. And Nikki, I just have to say, I've been studying 2 Corinthians, and I came across a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians 4 that just make me think about what we do when we talk back into Adventism about the gospel. It's 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 3. And Paul is saying, therefore, and, and he... To be fair, let me say this. He is speaking of his apostolic authority, what God has given him to do. Mm -hmm. And I am not saying that when we talk back into Adventism, we are apostles. I'm only saying I relate to Paul. I relate to what he's saying here. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But, and here comes... We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. My goodness, Nikki, isn't that how you feel? How much is hidden in Adventism because of shame? The lives of Adventist families are hidden because of shame. When people come out of Adventism, they suddenly have to face the fact that there is shame upon shame upon shame in their past. Not to mention the shame we all carried for the peculiarity of our message. Exactly. We didn't lead with it. We kept those doctrines tucked real close and came out best foot forward. In fact, many, many Adventist evangelists slash pastors do not even tell their converts really about Ellen White in any kind of a significant way until after they're baptized. It's too shameful. It's too embarrassing. So, we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness, or adulterating the Word of God. And I want to say amen to that. Mm -hmm. That's how we were taught. But by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Wow. I know, right? This is the idea behind what Paul is saying to these Galatians. You have come to know what Jesus did. You have to guard against these articulate, well-spoken, flattering, seductive proselytizers who are trying to put you into bondage under the law. And I say that to every Christian who encounters an Adventist who's trying to introduce you to the Sabbath and the health message. By adulterating the Word of God. Exactly. Using it illegitimately and assigning it false meanings out of context. So, in verse 29, he says, But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. Will you talk about that, Nikki? (laughs) That fascinated me when I first saw it. I mean, it still does. The slave children Ishmael and unbelieving legalists persecute the children of promise. When I read this the first time, I thought of all the seminars Adventists put on to persecute believers. I'm sorry, but that's what they do. They do. To persecute believers who worship God together on Sunday when the church gathers. I thought of all the ways they work to separate us from true believers with Sabbath-keeping, vegetarianism, our own schools, universities, camps, even medical and mental health facilities. Yes. 
I thought of how they made us terrified of Christians because one day they were going to hunt and persecute us because we wanted to go to church on Sabbath and not on Sunday. I thought of the accusations they hurled at apostate Protestantism Mm -hmm. as being a part of the beast power or at least being ignorant and deceived by the beast power. We were going to come rescue them. I was mad. I knew that if they hadn't done all of that to us, we would have been able to have conversations with Christians. All of these things that kept us separated from the Christians prevented us from having real conversations with them and saying, what do you believe? Why do you go to church on that day? We go on this day. We were socially segregated away from Christians. So we never heard from them the true gospel. We heard the Adventists tell us, oh, they believe in cheap grace. Oh, yes. Oh, they believe in that crazy thing called the rapture. All of the straw mans, all of the ways they depicted Christians to us, they were safe. They went unchecked because we didn't interact with them. We didn't connect with them in any way. And it was embarrassing to interact with them because we believed they were kind of ignorant and we didn't know how to tell them what we knew. And so when I read this and I read that it was, that it's the false teachers who persecute the children of the promise. And I thought about how they kept us contained in this lie and how, even if the Christians don't know that the Adventists persecute them, we knew. We did know. We knew. And I knew Mm -hmm. that this was a method that they used to keep us deceived and that it was intentional and generational. Wow. Nikki, we just received a letter from somebody who said they'd been listening to an earlier podcast and many of the people, it was one of our um, early ones when we did the the great contentment party that we had in, (laughs) in October, right after we started doing the podcast. And she mentioned that several of the people we interviewed talked about having been born Adventist. And that didn't make sense to her because she said that's just not possible any more than it's possible to be born Christian. And I just want to clarify that. Those who are born are born in bondage to sin. All of us, every single person. But when we say we were born Adventist, for us, it really felt that way because Adventism was almost like an ethnic identity. Mm -hmm. A Jew can say, I was born Jewish without being a Christian or any kind of a religious affiliation. It's an ethnic thing. I was born half Romanian, but I was born Adventist. It's that much of an identity. It's not primarily a religion when we talk about a generational Adventist. It's like an ethnic identity. It really is because there are Adventists in their 30s who don't fully know what they believe, but they know they're Adventist. They know they're Adventist almost more than what their nationality is. So that's what we mean when we say that. And the fact is that it is that powerful in the life of an Adventist. And it's hard to explain. I have come to believe it has a spiritual power behind it, a dark spiritual power that comes from the doctrines of demons that we absorb with our mother's milk, so to speak. Finally, in verse 30 and 31, Paul reaches the pinnacle of his commands to these Galatians. And he quotes again from scripture. He quotes from Genesis. And he says, what does the scripture say? cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. What else can you do but cry? I know. That's how I feel. That was a horrible thought because like we just said, Adventism was our ethnic identity. Yes. And for those of us who were generationally involved in this organization, that meant all of our family and our friends, (laughs) maybe our dentist, everybody (laughs) around us Mm -hmm. that we had any kind of significant relationship with was Adventist. And as I'm reading these words that first time and I'm, I'm comprehending Paul's point, I'm realizing I have to cast out this system of belief. And I knew To cast out the system of Adventism meant to disappoint everyone. It meant to them, because I'd been an Adventist, I knew what it meant to them. It meant to them that I was apostatizing, right? that I was joining the beast power. I knew immediately what walking away would mean for my relationships. And it was all because they'd lied to all of us. It's a being willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads, no matter what it costs. And I have to say, not only does a person who is facing the reality of Adventism have to decide to have the integrity to follow Jesus 
and to leave that system. But Christians have to be willing to cast out the bondwoman from their midst. If somebody moves into a congregation and subtly begins to teach, I've been in Bible studies, women's Bible studies, where there are people from other groups like Adventists or even uh, people who have been Mormon or even Catholic who try to talk in the Bible studies about how they understand things. It cannot be allowed. It doesn't mean that you have to send somebody out of a Bible study if they're wanting to learn but you cannot let them promulgate their beliefs. Our command from God is not to allow this heresy into our churches. And we have to guard ourselves. We have to guard ourselves knowing the gospel cannot compromise with works and with the law. We are either of Christ or we are of the world. There's no middle ground. And I just have to say, Adventism is of the world. It's part of the domain of darkness. It's not part of the kingdom of the beloved son. That doesn't mean that there are not Adventists who aren't going to be God's children and who aren't already God's children whom he's drawing out. But the fact is the system is corrupt and dark and we can't compromise. And if you feel that the Lord is convicting you of who Jesus is and of what he wants to be in your life and you haven't trusted him, Just look at this chapter, just look at this section that we've just studied and realize when God asks us to do something, He always provides His strength, His power, His compassion, His mercy to enable us to do what He asks us to do. And when it looks like trusting Jesus means jumping off a cliff, the reality of the fact that God catches you when you jump off that cliff, you can't fully know until you take the risk and trust Him. He died for your sins. He paid for all of them, past, present, and future, just as Scripture said He would. He was buried and He was raised on the third day, according to Scripture, so that you can trust Him with your life and with your sin and have eternal life. Trust Him if you haven't. If you have questions or comments for us, write to us at formeradventist at gmail.com. Visit proclamationmagazine.com to find a wealth of resources for those who want to learn more about Adventism or who are processing out. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for weekly emails that will deliver new material to your inbox every Friday. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and leave a review wherever you listen. And join us next week as we begin chapter five of Galatians where Paul encourages the Galatians to continue standing firm and warns them about what happens when they subject themselves again to a yoke of slavery. And we'll see you then.